0: Please be seated. We are stepping out of the book of Romans today for a special message and a special service as we talk about the gospel and motherhood. And uh, I would imagine there are people in their seats um, who would be thinking, Well, what gives you the right to address motherhood? You've never been a mother. It's like a Catholic priest talking about marriage. It's just you're lacking. Well, I had a mother. Okay, I lived with a mother. I had a a wonderful mother who loved me dearly, who prayed for me often. My mother said to me at one time, uh, the only thing my mother ever did that I thought was bad was she slammed my thumb in a car door. And I bled all over And she took me to the doctor. And Dr. Jimmy was his name, and he had a southern accent that would make you think I'm from Minnesota. <laughs> and he looked at me, and he said that, uh, I think you'll live, son. He said, it, it'll feel real good when it quits hurt. That's all he said. Uh, But my mother once made the statement that there were three things her boys would never do. Number one, none of us would ever be arrested. Number two, none of us would ever do drugs or alcohol. And number three, none of us would ever be divorced. Strike three. All of them happened, but I have two brothers, remember. I have two brothers. In other words, that that desire and promise did not come true for her. And uh, I enjoy this topic, and I do feel like I have insight into motherhood because I'm a pastor, and in many ways, we have the same challenges, Uh, the same challenges in terms of our calling because the work is never done, and you really never completely see the fruit of what you've attempted to do fully. But with that said, let's go to wisdom as we look in God's Word in the book of Titus, chapter 2. And I'll read verses 1 through 5 and then verses 11 through 14. And by the way, happy Mother's Day to all of you uh, this morning. Titus chapter 1, or 2, excuse me, beginning in verse 1. Now you have to know where Titus was and what kind of place Titus was in. Sorry for that. He uh, was on the island of Crete. And Cretans were known in that part of the world as the ultimate liars. It was a very decadent culture. Uh, in every conceivable aspect of the culture, this, was, this would make uh, Las Vegas look like Orlando. Uh, it, it was an unbelievable Uh, unbelievably wretched place but God had placed a church there and so Paul in his writing to Titus understanding the Roman culture that dominated the island of Crete provides him uh, some information regarding family life and household codes as they're often called. Hear now the word of the Lord, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded Dignified, self control sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And then down to verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Let us pray. God, our Father, we thank you for this passage that is before us, in uh, the Word of God. We know that it addresses the subject that we're gonna talk about today and we pray that the Holy Spirit will enable me to preach what is faithful and true as far as God's Word is concerned and to make accurate uh, applications and implications from the teaching. I pray also uh, for those who listen that you will give them a heart that is open and receptive Uh, that turns away from all things that would distract and focuses in to hear God speak today. And this we pray in Christ's name, amen. I once heard a very, well I didn't hear it, actually my wife Pam heard this, a very highly esteemed wife of a very highly esteemed pastor totally disarm an audience when speaking to a group of women. She was asked, how has the gospel helped you in your role as a mother? Not as a pastor's wife, not as a woman, but rather as a mother. How has the gospel helped you in that regard? And her reply was, the gospel has given me the courage to admit that I am a lousy mother. Not what you expected, was it? She also said, and this is today's vernacular, I hope this doesn't offend you, but this is a pastor's wife from New York and she said it this way, I really suck at being a mother. That's what she said. And it sort of disarmed everybody in the room because they thought, she just said, I'm not very good at it, but in my weakness and brokenness, God has given me amazing strength. In one sentence, she demolished the I've got it together, you should be like me mystique. She was radically honest about this calling. And in the, every, in the heart of every mother is a nagging vexation and a shadow of guilt that she hasn't done enough for her children, not enough to prepare them to take the right path, uh, lead them to Christ, uh prepare them in every way fear the only reason anyone in christ is because of the grace and mercy of god if we were perfect we wouldn't need jesus if our witness is to show people how much we need jesus then our witness will of necessity have components of our failures and our worries in our anxieties and in inadequacies, our mistakes, our sin. If we didn't have these things, we wouldn't need Jesus very much, would we? But we do have these things. And we want to present to the world a, uh, not a finished product to be overawed with, but rather a process in which God uses broken vessels. So there are three things that I want to talk about today in regard to motherhood, and they are pretty straightforward and simple. They come out of the book of Titus. First, Titus addresses in verse 1 of chapter 2 the need for life to flow out of gospel realities. When he uses the term sound doctrine, what he means is healthy teaching that is in conformity to the gospel of grace found in Jesus Christ. In other words, you don't do these things and practice these things in order to get acceptance with God, but you do these things and practice these things because out of gratitude and thanksgiving and a heart that desires to serve, you want to do what is in accord with God's will. And so Paul instructs Titus to teach people sound doctrine, healthy, whole teaching that will help them in daily life in all of the situations They may find themselves and so he he is concerned about the gospel producing uh, spiritual and moral health and strength in the body of Christ and It indicates that there are ethics or right ways of living that flow out of uh, the gospel itself and so he begins to teach in this passage different groups of people. He speaks to older men, he speaks to older women, he speaks to younger women, he speaks to young men. We're gonna focus in on the uh, motherhood aspects of this passage. Notice that there are three things he does. First he commands and then secondly he provides a little bit of a curriculum for us and then thirdly he provides some comfort for us and hope in this process of motherhood. Uh, First of all, he tells us that the gospel promotes the kind of living that reflects healthy and right teaching. And so there is a lifestyle that flows out of believing the gospel. And that gospel righteousness that we have that comes to us from Christ shapes and influences every dimension of our life. So we're not just people who believe in the gospel to go to heaven when we die. But the gospel has ramifications and implications and applications for every relationship in your life. It has implications for marriage. It has implications for your family. has implications for your job. It, has, it touches everything. It is holistic in that regard. And so Paul begins to instruct Titus, and down about verse 3, he says, teach the old women to be older women, to be reverent in the way they live. You know, you think as you age, you look forward to the day of retirement where you don't really have to be responsible for too much. Well, guess what? doesn't work that way in the church. The church needs older women to teach the younger women how to love their husbands and how to love their children. In other words, the Bible seems to be saying here that the older women, now how old is old? I mean, did Paul give an age here? No, I think he's talking about mature women in the faith who probably already reared a family. Uh, One of the things my mother told me, is, says, don't say raise your children. You raise turnips, you rear children. I said, okay, I'll never say raise again. We're rearing children. And there are things that mature older women. He uses the word reverent here. And actually, it's the Greek word for a priestess in a temple. You are to carry yourself with a holistic spiritual poise. And that's the best thing I can think of. The older women in this church in this congregation who have lived, reared a family, uh, been married to a husband, have understanding of the nature of things to be able to impart to the younger women very helpful information, information that no man in this church possesses. And I think it's important for us to understand that a church, for the church to be the church, this kind of ministry has to be uh, ongoing. It means that the older women have responsibilities for the spiritual welfare of the congregation. So they must not leave it to all, all to their male counterparts. Therefore, they must conduct themselves in a reverent way before God, I call that holistic spiritual poise. I think that's the best way to describe it. And so, notice that he also warns them, the older women, of a couple of things that could be a problem. Now, you have to understand that Paul is writing to Titus about what is called the upside down kingdom. The upside down kingdom is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It appears upside down to our culture. And the fallen world in which we live. And in Crete, when women were older, they were pretty free and loose to party. And they were pretty free and loose with their mouth to slander other women. And the idea here is, and and I hate to tell you this is what it means, but this is, you know, i got to be honest with the text. He said, it's like slapping somebody who has lost their senses. And he said, let me slap you into sanity here by telling you that there are two things you need to avoid. Number one is gossip, slander, ripping people apart, cutting them off at the knees so you stand taller, uh, to run people down, to uh, pick uh, all kinds of uh, faults out of other people and to nag them and to speak ill and give bad reports about people behind their backs. And the second thing they're not to do is drink too much wine. Well, how much is too much? Well, too much is what leads you to slander (laughs) and do all kinds of sexually promiscuous things, which in the Roman culture, women who had already had their children, their husbands had mistresses all over. And so they were pretty wild themselves and entertained themselves any way they thought they could. And so Paul is writing to a culture like this and he's telling them, look, In order for you older women, you need to realize that your life in your golden years doesn't mean you have no more responsibilities to the body of Christ. You have knowledge that somebody in this body needs. That's why Paul, when he talks about how God comforts us, that when God comforts us in all of our afflictions, it's not to stop with us. But we go and share that comfort with other people so they can be built up and encouraged and helped. And so one of the most important callings for the older women in this body is spiritual mothering in one sense. I think I like that term in this context. There are dangers and advices, or vices, not advice, but vices to be avoided. But old age and retirement do not come along alone, they bring with them subtle opportunities for older women to engage in destructive talk or escape into a fantasy world of alcohol dependency. But then he goes on and says, they are not to fall into either of these practices but they are to teach what is good. Uh, and so how do they do this? Do they set up classes and go, I'm an older woman now and I want you to come to church on Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock and I'm going to teach you how to be a mother and I'm going to teach you how to love your children. More than likely this is not intended to be formal, it's intended to be informal. It's intended to happen over a cup of coffee or maybe a glass of wine or a lunch or a meal or any time where you're together with those people, and just to listen and communicate because you have wisdom. You have learned uh, real experience in the task of being a motherhood, and you know what it feels like to be a mother. And I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes what it feels like to be a mother, if I've listened well, is death. It feels like death. It feels like self. Sacrifice. I often tell people, if you want to be a selfish, self-centered, turned, inward person, number one, never get married. And number two, even greater, never have children. (laughs) Because those two things are going to call you out of yourself more than anything else in the world. And uh, the result of that is you're going to have to learn how to live out your faith in that kind of context where people decry about everything I'm saying to you this morning. But we're not them. We're the kingdom of God. We're of a different order. So this takes place informally in the daily life of people or the congregational family. It's a teaching ministry. Women are to undertake deliberately and responsibly in the interest of the younger women. This ministry of women to women opens up numerous possibilities in terms of... Format, content, medium of this type of teaching in the modern and postmodern context. The the teaching could come, as I told you earlier, from Bible study groups, from social outings, one-to-one friendships, book readings, and book clubs, and whatever. But then the older women can train women to love their husbands and children. Now, why do women need to be trained to do that? Because it's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard to love your husband, isn't it? I once had somebody tell me their Bible nowhere commands women to love their husbands, only to submit to them. But here, the older women are to teach women what? How to what? Love their husbands and love their children. So there's something the older experienced women have to communicate from their life of learning to the younger women On how to do these things and so why is it that a woman needs to be taught to love her husband well it all goes back to the fall and in the fall after Adam and Eve sinned and God confronted them with their sin he pronounced upon the sinners consequences he pronounced a curse upon Satan And he basically said to Adam uh, first I think he said to Eve uh, you shall uh, bear pain in um, labor uh, in childbirth but I think in the Hebrew it also means the rest of your life you will bear a struggle in doing what you've been called to do the most and that is be a mother and love your husband. And then he said that your desire shall be to your husband in Genesis. Do you know what that means? Your desire will be to control and manipulate him. That's what your desire. Fallen women, not godly women like all of you, but fallen women will have a desire, you know, because men are stupid. And, you know, you just, you just have to do that because they don't know what they're doing. And then men will earn their whole life is driven toward what? Work, career, taking care of my family, providing for my family. And those are good things. But God promises that the man will have frustration in his labor. He will not enjoy his labor. Thorns and thistles grow in the garden and he's not able to cultivate the fields. And then he shall rule over the woman. What does that mean? A man tries to dominate his wife. Because of the presence of sin in the world, what should have been a complementary relationship of building up and supporting and edifying and encouraging one another, now because of the presence of sin in our midst, those purposes are at cross purposes with the fallenness of our flesh. People tell me all the time in marriage counseling, you know, I just married the wrong person. You know what I say to that? Everybody married the wrong person. Everybody. Don't you know that? Everybody married the wrong person. And you say, Pastor Tim, I don't believe that. Well, wake up. (laughs) It's not just him or not just her. It's you. And so the older women have street cred, so to speak, about how to love a man who... uh, It's sometimes difficult to love and how to love your children and how to pour yourself out, relationships. Uh, And so as we go on, it says they can train them to love. The primary responsibility of the younger woman in the body of Christ is to her husband and children in that order. What will make you the best mother you could possibly be? To love your husband. Because being and doing are two separate things. You can do the right thing but not have the right being about it, not have the right attitude about it. You can be filled with resentment or guilt or hate or feeling like death. But in order to really love your husband, you've got to have help with that. And that means to give of yourself, to get outside of yourself and realize that the world doesn't revolve around me. i probably have to talk to the men on Father's Day after this because their responsibilities are even harder. But anyway, the primary responsibility is to do that. The way that you love your husband communicates more to your children than reading them the best Bible stories you can. Reading them the stories are good, they're helpful, but your child is going to know I often call children God's little spies. They see everything. They know everything. They watch you. They watch. They know. They know the tensions that are there. They they watch, and they notice. And so the best mother you can be is to love your husband. And how do you love your husband? Well, the text here says that you are to what? Let's just go right to it. Some of you may not really like this, but they are to be self-controlled, and that's pretty clear, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Now, let me say something about submission that probably needs to be said. Your husband is not God. So this is not an unconditional command to submit To your husband, if he asks you to do things contrary to God's word or commands you to do things contrary to God's word or tells you to stop doing things that are contrary to God's word, uh, you don't have to submit to that. But submission to your husband means to stand under him. And the whole idea behind submission is to be supportive, to be encouraging, Because it's not too hard to pick at people's faults. We're all professional. We have doctor's degrees in the ability to see others' faults. We cannot see our own. We're totally blind to our own, but we can see what's wrong with everybody else. And so the wisdom in marriage is the wife, even though she knows her husband is flawed, even though she knows that maybe what he's doing may not be the best choice and she disagrees with him, you do have the right to appeal and say, honey, I'm not sure this is what we ought to do. Please help me understand how this is going to help. How is this going to be? I'm not saying you're an automaton or a robot or a Stepford wife, for heaven's sakes. I'm not saying that. This is a thinking thing and a processing thing. But you are to, by and large, try with all of your being to support your husband, to respect him. Often in marriage counseling, and uh, uh, when I see this, I think it ain't, it's not going to be long that they're still going to be together. When I see a woman who's lost all respect for her husband, that's tough to come back from. That's tough. Um, and when I see that enter into the equation, it breaks my heart. I mean, I understand it. I, I, I see it. I can see me doing it but it's just the saddest thing. And women are commanded to respect and build their husbands, and they're to love their children. They are to invest themselves in the lives of their children. Now, does this mean that a woman can't work? Not necessarily. The Proverbs 31 woman who is held in the highest esteem in the Christian world canon worked. She had a business. And she was also a mother that people praised at the city gates. So I'm not saying you can't work. Some people can't help. They have to work. What about a single mother? What's she going to do? So sometimes I just want to tell people who are very idealistic about some of these things to wake up and smell the coffee. We live in a real world. And so you are to be devoted to your husband and your children. Um, it's counterintuitive to our culture Um the older women are help to help the young woman see the good qualities in their husbands the blind spots in their own lives the selfishness that both may have insight on discipline insight on standards insight on traditions husbands and children are often quite difficult to love husbands often are under a great deal of stress and pressure at their work and they take it out and scapegoat it on their wives and that's awful and it's horrible and you men doing that, quit it, stop, don't do it anymore. You deal with that with Jesus, you don't need to pour that on your wife. For every one time you criticize your wife, praise her 25 times. You hear me? 25 times. You keep a count. Because we need that in our marriages. And so, even the Bible tells us we're to be submissive to husbands who are not believers, uh, so that a wife could, by her behavior, draw her husband to conversion uh, in that uh, relationship to the Lord. And so, there is to be a, a piety. Experienced here. Working at home, kind. You're a home builder, a home maker, a, a home worker. That is your rule and reign, is the home. Uh, likewise, uh, that the w- and he tells them to do this that the Word of God might not be reviled. Might not be reviled. Well, how does the Word of God get reviled? Well, it gets reviled by people who don't follow these particular commands that flow out of the gospel. Paul has a, uh, an apologetic purpose Which is not uncommon in the New Testament, the respectful attitudes and responsive behavior of Christian wives will help silence public criticism of Christianity as being a possible threat to society. The wives will show by their spirit and pattern of their lives within the home, the evidence points in the opposite direction. That makes Christianity, or that Christianity makes for the best social order through building good relationships between husbands, wives, and children. You know that the nuclear family is absolutely under attack in our culture. And it's all of the devil. It is satanic. And I am so shocked at how easily people are duped into thinking that we have the right to create family any way we want to create family. That's counterfeit. And it's a lie, and it smells like sulfur. It smells like smoke. And it comes from the pit of hell. That's where it comes from. And it is extremely destructive to the family and to our culture. And so, as we see, happens every day. the uh, crisis there is that the Word of God would be maligned through families not being family. Now, we don't need to make an idol out of any of our families. We've talked about that, you know. We don't. But motherhood is, is different. And when I say that motherhood is almost like a calling to death, why is it that way? Because it's an utter denial of yourself and even what you desire, what you want. What, what you want, how you want to live with your life, you have to give and give and give and give to not the most grateful people in the whole world. It is very much a sacrificial calling. And you just have to face the music. We can fantasize about it. We can dream about how wonderful it's going to be like my mother did when she said, my three sons will never be arrested take drugs or drink alcohol and get drunk or get divorced. Well, the trifecta hit. I didn't do all of them. I have two brothers, I told you. But here's the deal. You can't fantasy land motherhood. It is guts and grit. It's in the trenches, and it's hard. It is so very hard and so very apt to being overlooked Not praised to being uh, nothing but criticized and never being affirmed. But what a wonderful calling it is to be able to pour yourself into the life of other people. Motherhood is a call to death. There is a fulfilling part of it for sure. But it won't come in the ways the world talks about fulfillment. Fulfillment in motherhood is found in the way of the cross laying down your life so that another may live. Uh, in the New York Times, the, uh, this was an article called A Job Description for the Dumbest Job Ever. Sounds like the New York Times, doesn't it? The endless nebulous, nebulous work of motherhood inspired a recent New York Times article, A Job Description for the Dumbest Job Ever. In it, the author presents motherhood as a job description with lines like this. This position manages to be of utmost importance, and yet somehow also the least visible and or respected in the entire organization. And although you will coordinate, plan, and do almost everything you should to expect to crash face first into bed every night feeling that you've accomplished basically nothing. You ever had feelings like that? This is the kind of church where you can admit that. You can admit that if you've struggled with that. Motherhood is extremely humbling. There is no glamour in it. And it is sacrifice, and sometimes we resent the sacrifice. But we don't need to go out and burst everybody's bubble. A healthy dose of biblical realism will serve mothers everywhere. Motherhood is painful. It is. But it's life-giving. It is life-giving. Just as Jesus said of himself, uh, seed sown in the ground will uh, grow and produce much fruit. So his going to the cross was like dying, sowing that would bring hope and life to all his people. Motherhood is life-giving. It is investing yourself in the lives of others so that they may live. Well, my time is short. I want to end with a story, because everybody likes stories, and even me, I like them. And I have the story of a mother, and her name was Madeline. And let me read to you about Madeline. I, I don't like to read something this long, but this is so good I have to do it. Madeline is a hard-working, homeschooling mother of five who has faithfully worked to educate her children and train them for the Lord. She loves God. She loves serving in the church, loves her husband and children and their home. But the unthinkable has just happened. Her eldest daughter, who is 17, is pregnant. Madeline is crushed when she discovers that Chloe has been living a double life. While Chloe openly professed faith and appeared to acquiesce to all of her parents' demands, she had actually schemed to arrange tryst with a Christian boy down the street. To say that Madeline is devastated and disillusioned would be a momentous understatement. Every day she vacillates between giving up in defeat and humiliation or giving full vent to her fury at Chloe's betrayal and a lack of appreciation for all of Madeline's years of sacrifice for her daughter. After all, she changed. Uh, she trained her daughter up in the way she should go. Why didn't God keep her, his promise, why didn't he keep her from departing from it as he contracted to do in Proverbs 22? She feels betrayed, deserted, confused, disappointed, angry, and ashamed. By the way, that is probably one of the most misapplied verses in all of the Bible. What that verse means is when you train up a child in the way it should go, literally means to train up a child according to his or her bents. Which means you study your children to figure out what they're gifted at, and you attempt to pour yourself in helping them develop those gifts and talents. It has nothing to do with whether or not they return to the Lord in their older age. But a lot of people believe that. You need to quit believing in that because that's not what that verse says. How would you help somebody? Let's say Madeline knocked on your door and came to you for counsel. What would you say? What does she need to remember? Madeline has a healthy dose of gospel truth. The gospel tells Madeline about the Lord, about herself, and about Chloe. And it also tells her about the methods and motivations of obedience. First, the gospel informs Madeline about God's nature He isn't surprised at all by either her own sin or her daughter's. In fact, God is more aware of it than she will ever be. His plan to overcome evil with good was set in place before Chloe was born, long before the world was born. Because of the gospel, Madeline can be assured that God will overcome all evil, even Chloe's sin with good. But overcoming sin costs God dearly. He sent his son, as you know, from heaven to be born as a baby, to be wrapped in rough cloth, to suffer cold and hunger, be schemed against, betrayed, denied, and finally to be hung in humiliation on a tree, defiled by our sin despite his flawless innocence, and drinking down the cup of the Father's wrath. And although Madeline feels overwhelmed by her daughter's sins against her, she has to remember, she needs to remember, Jesus had to suffer for her sin too. At the same time, Madeline needs to remember the full atonement has been made. God no longer holds Madeline's sin against her, and if Chloe is truly his, he doesn't hold her sin against her either. Madeline also needs to remember what the gospel tells her, and I'll try to make this brief. What does the gospel tell her about herself? God's love for her isn't based on her performance. Are on her children's performances. His love is based solely on the performance of his son. She can rejoice that God doesn't operate on a quid pro quo basis, like a cosmic vending machine that spits out treats for those who perform flawlessly. By grace alone, she has been given the complete righteousness of the son. She is his beloved child because... She is in union with the beloved one. And the gospel tells her that her Savior who took on flesh like hers in order to redeem her is ruling sovereignly from heaven, never forgetting about her for one second, never neglecting to cause all things, even her sin, even Chloe's sin, to work for good. He will sanctify and keep her even though it feels like she has been set adrift on a dark and stormy sea. Only the gospel can change how Madeline feels about Chloe and how she consequently treats Chloe. When she's tempted to wrath or self-pity or self-righteousness, she needs to remember that the Savior died for her too. He had to for her to be saved. And as she humbles herself before the cross, she'll be able to mourn over her sin as well as the sins of her children. Everything I just read came from Elise Fitzpatrick. That is a woman who gets the gospel. But that's our only hope. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. That's where the comfort is for you mothers. There's something called grace, which is not just merely God's acceptance of undeserving people, but it's God's power at work in our brokenness and our weakness that delivers us from selfish, ungodly, wicked living and causes us to be conformed to the image of his son. So with that said, that's the gospel in motherhood. That's real life. Um, And I hope that you're encouraged by the truth, that you're never going to be a perfect anything, That your children, even though when they first come out of the womb, have this angelic glow about them, are fallen. They're little sinners. Sometimes my children used to get so mad at me, I, I would think they would kill me if they had a gun. They would just shoot me between the eyes. They're so angry. But another thing you should remember as I close It's not just you rearing your child, it is your child rearing you too. Marriage and motherhood are for sanctification. And God uses them as sandpaper to smooth the rough edges all of us have. I think that's enough for today. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we don't have to be perfect, that we cannot possibly live up to the lofty goals and callings of what we find for ourselves in Scripture, that if we haven't already found out, we just cannot keep the law in our own strength. We will fail every time. But we thank you that Jesus loves failures. That, that he's not put off by our failure, but is able, as we repent, to work in our lives that which is beautiful. Now, Father, I pray that as we continue to worship, we would do so in a way that brings honor and glory to you by our giving back to you a portion of that which you've entrusted to us. And we pray it will be used to honor and glorify your name. And I pray in Jesus' name, amen.